Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have spent in the inspiration through music and the chance to voice our own praise to you of what we feel in our heart about you and your great love for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to die on a cross to cleanse us of our sin and to give us life everlasting and to keep us from eternal punishment. Thank you for your salvation. All of our praise surrounds that. And now, Lord, as we grow in grace, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you and what you want from us how we can please you in our daily life. As we examine this section of Scripture in the early church, we pray that we'd be inspired by what we read. In Jesus' name, amen. This week I was reading an interesting story about a man who bought a lottery ticket for his girlfriend, and she won. She won $3 million. But the government taxed him on the three million dollars. And to make matters worse, when his ex-wife found out about this whole thing, she upped the ante on the alimony payments every month. So this guy just lost all the way around. I guess the moral of the story is be careful who you know, who you hang out with, and what you do with what you have. I want to talk to you about that this morning, what you do with what you have. Now, I mentioned this is not a typical message for me. In fact, if there's one area where I've been told that I err in is that I don't bring this up enough. And that's because I typically only like to bring it up in matters like today when it's in the context of what we're teaching on and the verses deal with it. But I want to take you back to a personal experience. The very first time I gave a tithe, a tenth, a ten percent of my income, the first time I gave a a tithe, I wrote a tithe check, it was a huge ordeal for me. It was huge. I felt the Lord speaking to me about this as I was a young Christian, but I was sweating, literally. I was holding on to that check, and I was thinking of all the other things I could buy with it if I didn't give it. All the other things I could enjoy if I didn't give it. And then I started thinking about the people around me and I began to rationalize, oh, they must have more money than I have and they can afford it. They don't know the situation I'm in and all of that. I did finally give it, but did I wrestle with it on that day. But then I discovered something. A little while after that, that 10% doesn't belong to the Lord. All of it does. 100% of it does. It's all His And He is gracious enough to allow me to manage 90% for myself unless He calls to do otherwise at some point. So when Lenny and I were first married, and by the way, yesterday was our 28th wedding anniversary. I've been married to the same wonderful woman who's put up with me for 28 years. Well, 28 years ago... When we were first married, 
One of the things we needed to decide upon was our finances. So we had a meeting and a decision about our finances. We decided early on in our marriage that the first check we write would be a 10% of our income check that would always go to our local church. That would never change. But then on top of the 10%, there were other missionaries or organizations that we wanted to support. We believed in their work. So beyond that 10%, we would give to other organizations and just trust the Lord in that regard. In fact, when it comes to trusting the Lord, the Bible distinctly says we should not only trust Him, but get this, test Him. Test Him. Now, we're never told to test the Lord in any area except one area. Interestingly enough, it's the area of tithing. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the children of Israel had been back in the land for a hundred years, but they were delinquent on their tithing to the Lord's work of the temple. And so God says to the children of Israel, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And then the Lord says in Malachi 3 verse 10, test me in this means prove me. Okay, try me out on this, God says. And see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing there will not be room enough to receive it. That's a direct point at which God says, try me on this, test me on this. Direct command. The title of our message this morning is When Christians Are Generous. And I've discovered Christians are generous. They're generous people. God's generosity makes them generous. According to Barna, who researches this, he said Christians tend to be the most generous group of donors, significantly higher than non-Christians to charitable causes. Says Barna, born-again adults remain the most generous givers in a country acknowledged to be the most generous country on the planet. But did you hear what he said? He said... Christians are generous when compared to non-Christians. However, if you were to compare Christian giving to historical trends in Christian giving, we don't fare all that well. According to research, even with the economic downturn in our country recently, American Christians are still the most affluent single group of Christians in the past 2,000 years of church history. But one in five American Christians give no money at all to charities. And less than one out of every ten will tithe. In fact, alarmingly, I discovered that modern Christian giving doesn't even match what Christians were giving in the Great Depression. One of the worst economic periods in our history, during that period, the average person was giving 3.3% of their income to the Lord's work. According to Lloyd Perry, getting the church on target, he said the average church member contributes between 1.5 and 2.5% of his total income specifically to the Lord's work. Interesting. That wasn't the problem in the book of Acts. Far from it. The church in the book of Acts was vital and growing. It was birthed in Acts chapter 2, and it continued full of life and pure, untainted 
until Acts chapter 5, which we're going to make a note of today. Their fellowship was real. Their love for God's Word was intense. Their care for each other was palpable. They were a generous group of people. And as a result, their testimony to the world was loud and clear. And because of that testimony, thousands came to faith in Christ within just a few weeks. In fact, I'll make this statement. The world had never seen anything like this since before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. That's how pure it was. Because after the fall, the Messiah had not yet come. Now the Messiah has come. After the fall, new life had never been implanted as a result of the new birth. Now it had. Since the fall, the Holy Spirit never lived inside people. Now He did. All of that was changed. And all of it was pure. And the world had never seen such purity and has never seen it since, I would add. Now this morning, I want to look at two verses. Verse 44 and 45. And it's very simple. What happens when Christians are generous... The answer is evident. Number one, they are open-hearted. And number two, they are open-handed. The first I'm going to spend just a moment on because we have dealt in part with it in the past. That is, they're open-hearted. Open-hearted. What I mean is they're generous with both time and talent. Verse 44 says, Now all who believed were together. All who believed were together. They were together physically, thus socially, but they were also together in purpose. Now, to gather together, you have to give of your time. You have to make a time commitment to leave your house and gather together like here with a group of people. And they did that, like you're doing that. Your coming here and giving of your time is a demonstration that you are generous with your time. You want to spend your time for the right reason, devoted to unity. Notice the second part of verse 44. And they had all things in common. Now, we've already discussed the principle of fellowship, koine or koinonia, having all things in common. But let me put a different twist on it. There is an expanded Greek translation of the New Testament by Kenneth Wiest that translates the second part of verse 44 as saying, they were holding all things in joint participation. Joint participation. They pooled together their talents. They gave their time and their talents in joint participation. And there were great results because of it. In the context of that, verse 47 tells us, Praising God and having favor or being attractive to all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Think about that. This group was so attractive because their fellowship was real, their love was real, their care was real, and thousands more came to faith in Christ because of it. They were unified Devoted to unity and community. Generous with time and with talent. Now, there is such a thing as theoretical unity. And theoretical unity is is the stuff we sing about. We love to sing how one we are. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. That's wonderful. It is. It's It's a great subject matter to sing about. But that can be all theoretical. 
what we read about here in the book of Acts isn't just theoretical unity. This is real unity. This is real stuff. This is real. This week I received a letter. It's a wonderful letter. I'm just going to tell you a little of it. It was from an 84-year-old widow in this fellowship. And she writes, I've debated writing this letter, but I truly feel that you'll be interested. At the present time, four generations of my family are regular attendees at Calvary of Albuquerque. Three generations are volunteering there. My son and daughter-in-law have gone to Calvary almost from the first days, and my son has been a dedicated volunteer for more than 15 years. My 11-year-old great-granddaughter has become also a dedicated volunteer. And she goes on in the letter to say, you know, we often come to two services uh, because one is the one we serve at, like many of you do, and the other is the one that we come to to listen to. And these reports are so encouraging. It shows how generous people are with their time and with their talents, a joint participation. So there's a a little bit of a snapshot of how open-hearted the early church was. Generous with their time, they were together. Generous with their talent, it was a joint participation. But there is a third. They were not just generous with time and talent, but also with their treasure. They were also open-handed. Now, there's a text that I sort of want to place over the top of all of this this morning. It's what Jesus said. He said, for where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. There will his heart be also. Martin Luther said there are three conversions, three conversions that must take place in a person's life. He said the conversion of one's heart, the conversion of one's mind, and the conversion of one's wallet which he said proves the first two and is the hardest to convert. Now, what I want to do with you this morning is have you look at verse 45 as sort of the the subject verse for the rest of our time together, which shows not only that they were open-hearted, but open-handed. Here's the verse. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were open-handed. Now, what does that verse mean? Because I I bet if you're honest, this verse has bothered you before. It's bothered me before. When I first read it, I thought, what does that mean exactly? Does this mean that every Christian in every church hereafter must do the same? Yes and no. Yes, in that every Christian hereafter must be generous if touched and forgiven by a generous God. We must be generous because we fit the description in verse 44, all who believed. So if you believe, you ought to also be generous. But no, in the sense that we should do exactly the same thing that they did, since we don't have exactly the same circumstances that they had. Now, in all fairness to history... Some groups have read verse 45 and concluded that all Christians must do this. If you really are a true Christian, you've got to sell everything you own and you pull it together. The Anabaptists in the 16th century, the Hutterite Brethren movement in 18th century Moravia made as a strong encouragement, if not a stipulation, that if you want to join their community, you've got to do this. 
But certainly not all of the followers of Christ did this. How do I know that? Verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from what? From what? House. House to house? Who has a house? I thought they sold their homes and they gave the money. Well, apparently not everyone did. Apparently this was voluntary. This was not compulsory. They could do it if the Lord laid that on their hearts. And there were so many poor people, the Lord laid that on a lot of hearts because they wanted to take care of each other. Now, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and look at a few verses. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 takes what we just read and expands on it just a little bit. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now notice how the group is described. It says now the... What's the number of them? Multitude. We don't know what the number is. It's interesting. They stopped counting by this time. In Acts 1, they count. There's 120 of them. In Acts 2, they count. There's 3,000 souls added. Now the group is getting so large, they don't even count anymore. It's just the multitude of those who believe. There's a lot of them. And what accounts for that growth? I can only conclude that it was this unity, this love, this magnanimity, this generosity was so compelling to the world that many joined their ranks. Now, let's finish off a few verses. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, it's translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, who gave that order? No one. Peter didn't say, okay, you want to join our church, you got to sell everything and drop the money right here, right now. Peter didn't say that. There was no order. The people themselves said that. Verse 32, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. That's what they said. This was voluntary. It was not forced. It was not compulsory. It was voluntary. Now, that's important to grasp. And here's why it's important. I don't know how many times I've either read books or heard people say, well, the early church in Jerusalem practiced a form of communism. They did not. This is not communism. This is communism. There's a big difference. Communism is compulsory. Communism is voluntary. Communism says, what you have is mine. Communism says, what I have is yours. That's freely given. That's voluntary. And that is what is practiced here. If you were to boil it down, God's view of finances is simply this. Everything you have in your possession, you don't have. 
All of it belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or everything that is in it. It all belongs to Him. You might say, but I paid for it. All 36 months of payments I paid for it. Or all 30 years of payments I paid for it. The Bible says God gives you the power to get wealth. He is the source. It all belongs to Him. And He has the right to call for 10% of it, 20% of it, or 100% of it. You're going to wait a minute, preacher. I thought, if anything, I have a responsibility to perhaps give 10% to God. Well, that's only the stewardship side of it. It's all His. It's all His. Just like when you gave your life to Christ, you gave your life to Christ. And this is all-inclusive. Now, that does not mean that God doesn't want you to have money. Far from it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. The context is money. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Theophilus in the New Testament presumably was wealthy and several others. It's not that God doesn't want you to have money. He does, but, but, if you love it, it'll mess you up. I can't say it any clearer than that. Uh, Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of it. And you can have none of it and have a love of it. I know people who love it, they don't have it, but they want it. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. I have never yet met a person who made as a goal of their life making money, making money, making money, who has not gotten messed up by it. No one. It just makes something askew and awry in a person's life. So that's the early church. That's what they did. Speaking of getting messed up by it, we're introduced to chapter 5. Chapter 4 is a contrast to chapter 5. But, notice how the word begins or the section begins with a negative. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The church was so pure up until chapter 5. This is the first incident of sin recorded in the church, and it's over money. Now, what was the problem? It's not greed. If you're reading that into the story, you've read it wrong. It's not that they kept part of it back. It's not greed. The sin was deceit. They said, according to Peter, that they were giving all. And they kept part of it back. They could have kept it all. This was voluntary. In fact, look at verse 4 again. While it remained, was it not your own? You could do whatever you want with it. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? 
It's between you and God. You can do whatever you want with it before the Lord. But you brought it to us and you said, I've given all to the Lord. But you didn't. You lied just to get your status raised. And God showed his obvious disapproval. Now, verse 4 is to me a great principle. It tells me that I need, as a believer, you need, we all need, to make a conscious decision of how we're going to handle our finances. We do it before God. We do it as a couple, husband and wife, or as a family, or as a single person. We make that determination as I did in my, my early marriage. Now, to do that, this might help. Because you might be thinking, let me just tell you something right now. This whole economic thing has just put me under the wire, and I'm so far behind, and I I do appreciate that, and we are as a church here to help. But I just want to help frame something for you. According to the United Nations, the latest statistics, the number of destitute people in the world, those who live, those who live or survive on less than one U.S. dollar per day, exceeds one billion people. Less than a dollar a day, one billion people. And the number, average number of people who die every day due to hunger are 24,000 people every day. I bring that up because some of those are our brothers and sisters. So whatever you decide to do with your finances, that should be a consideration. And in Jerusalem it was. They had a tender social conscience. And having that tender conscience, they simplified their lifestyle. And they were generous. So the early church was open-hearted and the early church was open-handed in their distribution. Now, would you turn with me and we'll close here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul writing. And I'm closing here because this gives us principles in giving. Principles, New Testament principles in generous giving. As you're turning there, let me tell you that though I often don't talk about finances like I'm doing today, and I'm doing it because of the context, I discovered something. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Now, maybe not as much as some preachers, but it has a lot to say about it. In fact, maybe it has more to say than some preachers. In fact, I discovered, and I was shocked, That in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, one out of every six verses deals with money. Did you know that? One out of every six verses. Out of the 29 parables Jesus told, 16 deal with a person and his money. Now, I'm convinced of something, and I'll share it up front. If Christians understood the New Testament principle of giving, they would be aching to do it. They'd be aching to do it. I know that because we don't have time to cover it, but in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul cites the Macedonians who found Paul and begged him to be able to give to this cause because they got it. They understood the principle. So let me give you some quick principles in giving. You can write them down. Number one, give intentionally. Give intentionally. When I say that, I mean give knowing that the Scripture commands you to do it and God will bless you for it. Give with that understanding that giving is powerful spiritually and practically. There are results. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. Look at that. But this I say, He who sows 
sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, the whole context is about giving. And Paul says giving is like farming. And so the truth in verse 6 is axiomatic. It's a self-revelatory truth. You don't dispute it. Every farmer knows it. You reap what you sow. And if you sow seed in the ground, it's a little bit of seed, you get a little bit of result. You sow a lot, you'll get a lot. It's a principle of farming, but it's also a spiritual principle. It's a spiritual principle. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but it's a spiritual principle. It is said over and over again in the Bible. Jesus in Luke 6.38 said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In Proverbs 11, 24 and 25, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Proverbs 19, verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. All these verses say the same thing. That when you give, it is invested with God, and he pays dividends on it. Listen. You can never outgive God all along the way. Whatever you give, whatever I give, God will give and bless more. In fact, God says, test me, try me, try this out. It works. And Paul and Jesus and Solomon all agree. Again, I don't completely understand it. It didn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. Because the world tells me if I give my stuff away, I have less. God says, yeah, but do that. And just watch. I'll give you more. So give intentionally. Number two, give proportionally. Give proportionally. Verse 6 through 9 is the cycle of giving. Let's just go through it and read it all. It probably would have helped at the beginning. This I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad and given to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. It's a cycle. You sow, you reap. And with that, you sow more and you reap more. And that's the cycle that a farmer experiences. And the farmer sows, if he's the smart farmer, in proportion to what he has. And we should give in proportion to what God has blessed us with. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, Paul says, Let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, or in proportion to your income, that there be no collections when I come. Now, this always brings up questions. Well, what proportion? 
Do I tithe on the net or do I tithe on the gross? People get very technical about this. Well, the tithe is Old Testament. You're never commanded to tithe in the New Testament. You're told to be generous. You're told to give proportionally. And the tithe was Old Testament. and That was always just the, the place of beginning, like it was when I made a decision in my early marriage. But that's just the beginning. According to W.A. Criswell, who's now in heaven, he had experience with this man, J.L. Kraft, from the Kraft Cheese Corporation. He said he gave always 25% of his enormous proceeds income to Christian causes over the many years. 25%. Now that sounds like a lot to some, but it pales in comparison to another man by the name of R.G. Letourneau, an industrialist. Some of you know his name because he was one of the first guys that invented large earth-moving equipment. He decided, he said, if God blesses me, I'm going to use it to further his kingdom. Well, God blessed him. And he lived on 10% of his income, and he gave 90% of his income away. God blessed him a lot. And he could live very comfortably on just 10% of the enormous profits he made. Number three, give prayerfully. Give prayerfully. Verse 7. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You've got to purpose something in your heart. It carries the idea of premeditation, not giving on impulse, not giving because the music and the chords just bring up that emotion and somebody says, now please, we need your help. Don't do that. Don't give on impulse. Predetermine it. When you get your paycheck, have a meeting with your heart before God. That's where it takes place. Don't let anybody tell you exactly how much you're to give. It's really none of my business what you give. And I've never made it my business. I never look at proportions. Hey, tell me what this guy's tithing. I never have ever looked at them. I want the freedom to minister to you apart from anything you give or don't give. And my responsibility ends when I make known the need. And then it's between you and God. That's how I see it. I think that's how the Bible teaches it. You give prayerfully. Now in Exodus 25... God says to Moses that he wants to take an offering. Listen to how he puts it. Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. has to be willing. You have to want to do it. Which leads us to the fourth and final principle. And we close here. Give joyfully. Not just willingly, but at least joyfully, happily. Verse 7, again, not grudgingly, which means with grief, literally. Oh, this really hurts, man. Really hurts to give this. I really don't want to. I get so depressed when I think of this. Don't give that way, he says. Not out of compulsion or not grudgingly, nor of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. This describes a person who says, I know I should do it. I know God wants it and I know it'll bless people and God will probably even bless me, but I just really don't want to do it. Then keep it. Go spend it on yourself. 
or change your attitude. And the attitude is to be a joyful attitude. Hilaron is the Greek word cheerful. Or, yeah, cheerful. Hilaron. We get the word hilarious from it. You ever seen a hilarious giver? It'd probably be something like, ha, 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 woo, all right. Who does that? God loves it. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, please mark that. It's a unique statement in the New Testament. It's a singular statement. God loves agapao, the unique divine covenant love, a cheerful giver. It's not that God doesn't love everybody. God does love everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God loves all believers. But here it's stated, God has a unique love for those whose hearts, like his, are generous and will give away what God has entrusted to them. I want that. I want that benediction of being uniquely loved by God. I don't want to lose that. And any preacher worth his salt would never pressure his people to give because he didn't want to take away the joy of being uniquely loved by God by having a willful, cheerful heart and doing it out of necessity or compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So what happens when Christians are generous? A lot. They're open-hearted. They're open-handed. They see a need. They want to meet it. They give prayerfully. Needs are met. The kingdom is furthered. God blesses them with more, and they give more to God's work, and that cycle continues. If you ever come to Israel with us, on the same day, I will promise you this. We will show you on the same day, from morning to evening, two bodies of water that are inland from the ocean. One is the Sea of Galilee, and one is the Dead Sea. What's interesting is both of them are connected to the Jordan River. Jordan River flows from the north into the Sea of Galilee, continues south, flows into the Dead Sea. But when you see these two bodies of water, they're vastly different. The Dead Sea, uh, the Sea of Galilee is green, lush, verdant, full of life, children playing around it. There's city, little villages on it, farming communities. You get down south to the Dead Sea, and it's aptly named. Nothing grows around it. Nothing lives in it. It is dead. Which prompts a question, why is one living and one dead? Answer. Has nothing to do with the source. It has everything to do with the outlet. Now hear me. The Sea of Galilee takes in water and gives out water. The Dead Sea only has an inlet. There's no outlet. It just takes in and takes in and takes in all the blessing and gives none away. And it collects it all and evaporates and it's dead. The Jews often use that as an illustration to point to two kinds of people. Those who are living and vibrant and joyful and attractive are those who, like God, have a generous heart because they've been generously forgiven and lavished upon. But those who do not are dead. So, God says, take an offering and give, but only do it with the right heart. You know, you can give without love. But you can never love without giving. I know plenty of people who go, oh, got to do it if it's my duty. That's giving without love. But if you truly love, the natural result of love is to give. For God so loved that He gave. Heavenly Father, we are recipients of Your love and of Your gift 
of eternal life. You are so generous to us. You've blessed us with all things. All things come from you. Now, Father, I pray that we would be as generous with others and with your work as you are and your work has been toward us. Help us, Lord, to get not only the four priorities in verse 42 down pat, being devoted to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, but also, may we also, as Paul said, excel in this, in the excellence of giving with the right heart, a joyful heart, an abundant and loving heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.